You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 64 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where you investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this episode, we interview Kelton Meyer. Kelton is currently a PhD student in anthropology at Colorado State University. Go Buffs. We wanted to have Kelton yeah. on to discuss his research on game drives in the Colorado Rockies and Folsom sites in Colorado. He also works with drones and photogrammetry, uh, new technologies mixed with old artifacts. Sounds like a match made in heaven. Kelton, we're really excited to have you on. How are you doing this evening? Great. Thank you for having me on. It's it's great to meet you, Carlton and David and Connor. It's great to see you again, too. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about this the other day. I, like Every conference, archaeology conference that I end up going to, I end up seeing you. It's just like, I think yeah. <laughs> you were at the, were you at the SHAs in Boston? No. So okay. No, maybe I thought. I had, I, had a, I had a doppelganger out there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We saw each other probably at SAA. Did you, were you in DC? Yeah. I think we, yep. we all were in DC. Yeah. We a bunch of oh, yeah. That was a good one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but originally, you and I met through various connections. For, I think the first time was actually, so I worked for Dr. Robert Brunswick, who works in um, North Park, doing a survey and testing and all kinds of stuff over the summer of 2014. And Kelton was part of the U- University of Northern Colorado field school. You know, I was instructed to teach kids on survey techniques and, and, and whatnot. And I was not even remotely qualified to do that, but. <laughs> and I was one of those up, poor suckers, those kids. <laughs> I'm glad you're still in the, the, the profession. Yeah. But it, but yeah, and then we met through CSU and a bunch of different people there. And it's, I'm excited to have you on and have a, a CSU Ram here because we have the, the buff boy up there who keeps talking yep. the whole time no no no. it started with you and carson black who brought that up in like an offside where someone was just like yeah straight up fuck folder and i was just like dude guys come on we're keeping simple but no it's friendly and i definitely have a lot of respect for for your advisor labelle i mean the csu plains anthro center of knowledge is is big and you guys are always doing big things and always bringing a lot of undergraduates out which is extremely admirable and i think absolutely necessary yeah, something we definitely take pride in for field schools, but also just giving opportunities to students in an undergrad setting, working for our lab. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're all friends here. I think I really appreciate the stuff Doug Banforth does at, at CU Boulder. Just really phenomenal work he's done in Paleoindian stuff, but then getting into planes, plane sites as well, too. I mean, yeah, I think we're all we're all on the same team. How would you describe Fort Collins? Uh, better than Greeley, uh, where I went to undergrad. <laughs> this, is where this is where we would escape to to have fun. But yeah, Fort Collins is great. It's like uh, it's like Boulder, but sort of without like the hippie vibe. I guess I would say. Yeah. Uh, oh, it is so crunchy here. Yeah, it's super. Yeah, crunchy is a great way to describe Boulder. Yeah, I think that's. But like other than that, it's pretty comparable. I would say lots of bars, lots of good places to eat, and good anthropology departments. So there you go. Yeah. Our uh, first guest was Dr. Spencer Pelton. You probably know him. Yeah. He called it uh, Millennial Shangri-La. Shangri-La, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Trustafaria. Um, I've heard that one before. It's, it's a cool town, man. I enjoyed it there. Yeah. I love to go visit there. Have you ever been to that Rincon Argentina place that has like the empanadas? 
in Boulder. Oh, yeah, it just says empanadas on the sign. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but it's so good. And it just looks yeah, like a dive. It's perfect. And it, it survived COVID, most importantly. Yeah. A lot of places wow. around here did not. But the empanada place. Hmm. <laughs> uh, Michelle and I, she's, she's also an archaeologist. She's my girlfriend. But I think we single-handedly kept some businesses alive in COVID. We were just like ordering out all the time. Yeah. You had a real yeah. MVP. Yeah, appreciate that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so you're a PhD student now. Was was that always where you were going? Were you were you a dinosaur kid? Were you a, a frog kid? Or were you? A- <laughs> I was definitely into dinosaurs growing up, um, but I was never. Yeah, I didn't really. I didn't have like a career choice like early on or anything like that. I, I wanted to be an astronaut. That was like the first thing I wanted to be, and then. All throughout high school, I was really into biology and chemistry. And then I go to UNC in Greeley, kind of aiming to be a teacher. It was a great teaching college. And then the first thing we get thrown into is like learning how to do standardized tests. And I was just like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here. And then got back into hardcore chemistry. And I was like, don't really love this. And then, yeah, I kind of like found history and anthropology sort of haphazardly at the end of my undergrad career. I just enjoyed the content so much. I just, I knew that I loved it. And even if it didn't have a job at the end of the tunnel, I still wanted to do that no matter what. And then, so yeah, I just kind of got fortunate that like I kept wanting to learn and that's sort of how the academic career started for me, I think. Did, uh, did you do a field school with that program? I did a field school as a part of my minor, uh, in anthropology. So actually I'd already graduated and I spent my graduation like prize money that my fa- my parents gave me um, on field school, so that that was it paid for that. Wow. And then nice. I, I got a job right after field school, and I was like, "See, look, it it worked out." <laughs> <laughs> Good. And, yeah. and that was with um, is it Doctor Doctor Creekmore? Yeah, so it's uh, Doctor Andy Creekmore. He's really into uh, geophysics and like remote prospection type stuff, but he works primarily in the Levant region, so you know Syria, Turkey all of those countries over there and doing like big infrastructure stuff. So I hmm. had almost like no, I mean, he did a well-rounded uh, class and everything, but I had no interaction with like hunter gatherer stuff, which is what I'm into now. Um, and I didn't find that until I was already a CRM archeologist. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of a whirlwind of, of how I ended up where I'm at right now. It's hunter gatherer arc just kind of sucks everyone in because it, it's it just does. Like- yeah, it's just the fundamentals of archaeology. So and like humans, I like it a lot. Yeah, um, yeah, humans especially. I didn't. Yeah, like I didn't know anything about like human origins either. Like going into it, and then hmm. that was something I picked up in in my master's classes. Like, holy crap, this is awesome. Um, yeah. So you eventually traded Stinky Cowtown for the luscious and fantastic Fort Collins. What what ultimately inspired you to? choose kind of CSU as uh, a place to get your master's? Yeah, I think not to be all romantic about it, but I think CSU kind of chose me. I, uh, Ada Creekmore was helping Jason LaBelle out at the Fossil Creek site, which is an early ceramic uh, campsite located in Southern Fort Collins. And I I asked Andy when I was on break from a CRM job, uh, if I could volunteer just to get back into, you know, the academic side of things. And I went to the site and I started running the total station and setting up the magnetometry grid for, for them to run magnetometry on. And Jason met me on that trip because he was out there with Andy because it was the site he was working on. And 
he was like, oh, who's that guy? You know, and I introduced myself and he hired me like the next day, essentially. And so it turned into the summer of doing mountain archaeology, sort of in Eagle County in central Colorado. I, that's when I was like, OK, this is like what archaeology you know, can be, not necessarily just doing it for, you know, the private sector, but like actually doing projects for research questions and, you know, things I just had not experienced before. And so and that just turned right into grad school, like right after that. Uh, which was pretty cool. So yeah, it was sort of a, I didn't really plan on talking to Jason necessarily. Uh, we just sort of met and, and uh, went to grad school. <laughs> so. so it sucked you back in. You like, yeah, like, yeah it's, it's, it's funny how that works out. I mean, even when I, when I go back now and, and go to these kind of sites and, and see this research going on, you just like, there's like an itch there they're like oh this is really cool it's not associated with a pipeline or yeah some crappy yeah. transmission tower or something like that you know it just there's yeah there's that draw into that yeah for sure i definitely love like i love getting paid in crm archaeology and I, I like the archaeology too like recording sites and you know determining eligibility and you know trying to protect things if they needed protection was great but like I didn't know about that other piece of it. I had no experience with like the research side of it really. And so as soon as I figured out that that's what was going on, like behind the scenes for at, at, at uh, universities, I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing now. What's the, uh, like the grad classes like at CSU? Um, like is a lot of seminars or a lot of labs or how's that work? Yeah, it's sort of a mixture of everything. We have seminars for like the grad students. They do, you know, in, our grad classes it kind of vary from year to year for, in terms of the amount of students that we have. But yeah, seminars is a big piece of it. Some of them can contain like a lab component as well, but it's it's definitely not the majority of classes. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a yeah. favorite class that you? <laughs> <laughs> I did it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my favorite classes were uh, in my masters. There were the first one I took was archaeological method. And so it was just like running through all the different methods that we use in the field and in the lab. And it was really like uh, choose your own adventure, kind of like, you know, Oregon Trail type stuff where, uh, yeah. you know, if you want to learn about lichenometry, you know, you can do that. Um, nobody else might be interested in it, but you could do that. Uh, we could do radiocarbon dating. You could do PXRF. You could do, you know, 3D modeling. Um, it was really nice that the students were active participants in their, in their, um, uh, education, I guess. I think one of the coolest things that I noticed as, a, as an undergrad at CSU is that Jason, Dr. LaBelle, and the other professors really have this kind of big scope or lots of big ideas and lots of projects and kind of different avenues of doing research and things like that. And, you know, I think there's that's one of the, the coolest things that there's lots of opportunities there um, because you have the, the Center for Mountains and Plain mountain and plains archaeology there and, and whatnot. Um, so what kind of shenanigans did you get into as, as part of your grad school? Yeah. Career? When I first started at CSUA, I was immediately sort of like a field director for the Rocky Mountain um, Ice Patch Project. So we surveyed about uh, 20 ice patches over, over a period of about four years looking for things like Craig Lee is finding in Yellowstone, um, you know, like shafts of atolatls and, you know, pieces of baskets artifacts associated with ice at high altitudes. 
So that was a project that I was able to get into right away because we really needed labor labor up there. We needed somebody that kind of understood mountain archaeology going in. And I was already building my thesis towards that. Uh, so I just had this inherent interest in it. But that's a project that uh, Jason LaBelle ran. Yeah, we didn't find hardly anything in those ice patches. But the last field season we had, we came back with a possible artifact out of one of the ice patches, which was pretty cool. But yeah, in, in addition to ice pass research, I helped excavate the Fossil Creek site over the next several years that we were there for field school. We got into Fremont archaeology in northwestern Colorado, and I was doing photogrammetry and corn granaries out there to try to get at volumetrics of how much corn you could actually store in these little corn cribs. Um, they're made of daub and wood. And I was leading uh, backpacking surveys into the to the Rewa wilderness, which is sort of like the tail end of the medicine bows. And I was researching a high-altitude Indian site called Kerry Lake, which is a James Allen and possibly a Cody Complex site up at 11,000 feet. So yeah, it was a busy time uh, just doing field projects in my master's, but it's something that, that kind of is open to people as you come into the program and that we already have these projects lined up because, you know, we have these research designs that are really cross-cutting the entire state, definitely in the northern half of the state. And so lots of open research projects for students. That is like a really good example of just all the different kinds of Colorado archaeology you could do and like mountain archaeology. That's really cool. Yeah. 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 Um, like you sampled it all, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, it is li- like a literal, you know, straight line across the state from like Fort <laughs> Collins to, to Rangeley and you know, that's sort of what Jason LaBelle's lab is about is it's um, trying to look at similar questions at all these different regions in the state and just like how people are using the landscape over time and across space. And so, yeah, I mean, everywhere is sort of open for that, which is nice. I feel like there's not many departments in Colorado that actually do Colorado archaeology. I know like a large part of Carlton's department does, you know, Mayan, you. yeah, Mayan stuff, and maybe maybe they do some like us uh, four corner stuff, but yeah. like plains archaeology and mountain archaeology, it's not something that's really historically done, except for by like CSU and maybe UNC and maybe UCCS too. But yeah, it is interesting that that's like we don't have a Southwestern program at all, really at. at at CSU. And so that's something that Boulder definitely has a corner on. And then, yeah, we definitely have gotten into the mountain stuff, but um, yeah, UNC, like you were saying too, uh, Bob Brunswick used to have a really big project in Rocky Mount National Park. Um, But yeah, since then it has sort of fallen to CSU. Yeah. Who does work at Colorado Springs? Uh, I don't know the names. Is that Karen Larkin down there? Oh, that, yeah, we, we worked with her in alpine yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so they there's a couple like historian historical archaeology i think folks who do it down mm-hmm. there i don't i don't know many names off the but yeah it's like it's it just seems like an uh like an understudied area and i, I really appreciate dr labelle for taking kind of this big approach and, and really kind of asking all these questions i think it's it's exciting yeah it will he's like always like uh he has sort of like a 30 year advance in what he wants to do. I mean, he has some pretty, really big plans. And so like, you know, everywhere we go across the state, it's like, this could be a thesis project. Like this could be one, this could be one, you know? And so it's trying to position students in these ideal spots that they can uh, kind of run away with these things. Yeah. And he's really, he's like known for that. 
for having a knowing what he's up to, how long he's going to be doing it and then getting students involved. That's like a huge draw that LaBelle has that was often commented on is that he's, it's not just him. He's built this whole network of growing archaeologists at CSU that are getting actively involved in publications and research as undergrads and early on in their masters. And it's just like, uh, he should be a model for how other professors conduct their own research. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. And also, you know, so that's like future stuff, but then like we've had this repository that's been collecting things since the 1970s, you know, and a lot of these sites are super significant. Not much is written about them. So like field projects, but also collections based research is definitely uh, something that's going on here. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Taking on the, that project is as being a, stu- a student there, you know, there's, there's boxes and boxes mm. and boxes yeah. so going back through getting them into a place where they're cataloged and stored and things like that. It's, it's such, it's a lot of work, but it, and it's not always the sexiest, but it's, it needs to be done. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never definitely like run across bugs every once in a while, <laughs> like in these boxes. Yeah. You'll see it. You'll see a mouse here and then. Um, but we have a new uh, collections manager too, Janine uh, Peterson Guzman, who has just been doing a phenomenal job at like making these collections researchable again and kind of opening the repository back up for taking on collections too, which is really cool. And so they have like a museum certificate that's been. Um, been building up over the last couple of years nice. uh, yeah yeah so it's been really nice to work with her on that well it's been really nice to have you in the first segment so we'll be right back with episode 64 of life roads podcast we'll be right back with Kelton Meyer. welcome back to episode 64 of life in ruins podcast go rams Sweet go rams love. yep absolutely we are here with kelton meyer who is a phd student at csu currently and we wanted to start this section off by talking about um, your master's thesis work. So could you explain what you studied and and where that led you and what you kind of concluded from it? Yeah. So I did my thesis at a site called the Hydegrade site, which is a, a game drive. And game drives are these, these intercept hunting sites. So there's a couple of different ways of hunting. You can have it's sort of an encounter-based hunting technique, or you can have an intercept hunting technique. And in intercept hunting techniques, you typically will capitalize on topographic variability or construct features to help capture animals. Um, so you can think about net traps, a whole bunch of different things. But the high-grade site is characterized by rock features up in the alpine tundra, uh, so 12,000 feet above altitude or above sea level. Uh, so it has three different types of features. These include stone walls, circular and semicircular hunting blind pits, as well as cairns uh, that sometimes are formed into a line or they're just kind of uh, randomly placed throughout the landscape. But yeah, so these are, are sites with rock features uh, that are used to, to drive and trap animals into confined spaces. And so you can think about ideal s- settings to capture animals. Uh, these would be like around blind corners, but at game drives in the Alpine, these are often into sort of like rocky talus slopes or at the precipices of hills uh, where there's a lot of topographic variability that you can hide behind. And then often at these intercept areas, you'll have clusters of hunting blind pits where hunters would sort of uh, hide behind the rocks and, and shoot animals as they came into view, uh, which is pretty cool. My thesis was sort of about um, untangling a really complicated site. A lot of them are really easy to uh, sort of identify what's going on. You have these V-shaped, wing-shaped walls that sort of come in and sort of, you can see the direction 
uh, that animals are being driven into and where all the hunting blinds are clustered and stuff like that. Uh, but high grade is not like that necessarily. It's a lot of overlapping lines of walls and sort of hunting blinds sort of positioned all over the place. And so I was sort of tasked with trying to figure out what that all meant and then also to figure out how old it was. So those were the two principal things that I was after. And so I did a variety of things to try to answer those questions. Uh, in terms of chronology, I looked at radiocarbon dating of, of charcoal that we recovered from uh, the interior floors of the hunting blind pits, um, as well as bone that we found on the surface and tucked within the walls. And then I did more traditional uh, typological dating artifacts that were found on the surface. So you can think about diagnostic projectile points and the whole cultural historical sequence that we have here um, in the Colorado Front Range, just looking at how it was used through time, just based on the artifacts themselves. And then also uh, using a technique that is sort of specific to the Alpine in the mainland U.S. anyway, and uh, this is the lichenometric technique. And so what you do is you measure the diameters of individual thalli or thalluses thalli uh, that grow on on the on the rock walls themselves. And so by measuring a certain number of lichens that grow on rock walls, uh, you can calibrate those measurements to a growth curve that we have for the region and try to extrapolate their age from that. And so I used three different dating techniques to try to get at the chronology. And then I looked at the spatial positioning of walls relative to hunting blinds to try to get at how the site was was built and used. Jesus. All right. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I was waiting for you guys. <laughs> yeah, it was that's, a big thesis. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I mean, because you have a, you, you, you published it. I'm writing Journal of Field Archaeology. And I, I did. I, yeah. And I, I read yeah. it before this and I was just like, wow. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely yeah. blown away. There's a yeah, lot dude. that goes into that. Yeah. You know, the chronology piece is the hardest part. And so that's why I wanted that article was to just kind of knock that out. And so people can kind of understand like how difficult it is to really determine how old rocks are. Right. They're not necessarily the easiest thing to date. And so that's what that one was about. Yeah. And, and more impressively, like you got several scholarships to fund this. Yeah. 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 Like um, a, a bunch. And this is why I like getting CVs from our, our guests. It's like. Yeah. Thanks for asking uh, for that. That was cool. <laughs> yeah. No, this is how we do this. Like, so we have, so the other uh, hosts have an idea of what we're talking about, but that's a lot of scholarships. So how much did that, so the different, I know how much like a radiocarbon date, who'd you run it through radiocarbon dates? Yeah. I ran it through beta, beta, beta yeah. analytics. How much yeah. was it, did it cost per sample? Uh, trying to remember. Um, so it was different. I ran charcoal and I ran bone. And so they differ slightly, but it was between. Really? Yeah, they do. Yeah. It's, it's because bone, you have to do a couple of extra steps to get, you know, the sample that you need kind of uh, mm -hmm. filter it. Um, but yeah, so it was, I think, I think that's all I used. I might've used direct AMS for one of them, but I can't remember, but it was mostly beta and yeah, it ranged between 500 and like 700 a sample, but I should say, and to Jason LaBelle's credit, he helped me pay for some of the extra dates, um, that I wasn't able to fund, uh, just from the scholarships. Yeah, yeah, and so those uh, expensive. Yeah, it's so expensive. Yeah, both kinds and, of dating. And, and um, in in uh, that article, as as I'm sure you, it's so difficult. <laughs> a slow burn. <laughs> yeah, it's a slow burn. I was like ready to start going. I was like, yeah, let's talk about dating. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the 
you know, as you saw, like some of those dates came back like 40,000 plus. I was like trying to explain that I was like, okay, interesting. That's probably not charcoal one. And two, maybe it's like, like coal from like the railroad that's like right next to the site. So like, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, you want, you want to spend the money to date stuff, but you want to do it on the right things. And so I learned yeah. that. I learned that. The hard yeah. Way. Watching yeah. $600 piss away in the wind to like a 40,000 <laughs> year old radiocarbon date. I mean, yeah. you could have just taken that to nature and said like, you know, yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So first yeah. they did Saruti and then they came over here to the top of this mountain. Yeah. No, totally. Uh, Same group yeah. of people. Same group of people. Yeah. Definitely related. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I went down to Chakrahuti cave in Mexico. Yeah. We could have made a whole <laughs> nature paper on this. This is a uh, book. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Excellent. Moving forward with that. Fundamentally, what, how did your foot? So you haven't asked him like the most important part of a CV yet. What, what's that? He's a pilot. You're a pilot. <laughs> A drone pilot. Oh, I was like, <laughs> oh, I thought it was an actual pilot. I was like, no. what Carlton jumped on that yet? That makes no. Oh, sense. Oh no, it's with FAA <laughs> yeah. though, so it's he's it technically is. a yeah. He's a he's a, a small uh, yeah small unmanned aircraft pilot. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that makes more. Makes more sense. We'll, we'll, we'll okay. roll back in that. So fundamentally, cool. like, what did your how did your thesis and subsequent article add on to what we know about human behavior in North American sure. archaeology or within the Rockies? Like what was like the big takeaway? How did it contribute to our field? Yeah. I mean, I think it contributed like I, uh, I really try to take an analytical approach to dating those sites and try to talk about time and space in a way that hasn't been done before at those sites. You know, I think it's really common in archaeology for folks to see like a huge range of dates and say, okay, people came back and used the site like over 6,000 years and that's sort of the end of the story. But I really try to get at sort of the ebbs and flows of like why people would have really done that over time and what problems they would have been trying to solve over time and how, you know, problems in terms of subsistence continue to crop up due to things like population demographics, uh, changes in technology, you know, different needs that that people would have had uh, over time. You know, it's almost like niche construction where like they're really modifying their landscape in a way to capitalize on on, on hunting and, and, to, uh, and to, to and to solve those problems that they might have. And so um, that was the thing that I was trying to get at for sure. And then in terms of that article, I really wanted to talk about just like why we need to be a little more analytical about dating rock features at in the Alpine. Like there's a lot of inconsistencies in what dates actually mean at sites. So you know, for instance, it, we've been dating charcoal from hunting blinds for, you know, for a long time since the 70s. But like trying to explain like why fire was being used in a hunting blind and how that's relevant for site formation, like doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, trying to explain why you get this huge range of projectile point types, but really more frequent types than others and how that might relate to game drive construction versus like just simple hunting before those features existed on the landscape is another thing I try to get at. And, um, yeah, so I wanted to be a little more critical, uh, which I think it's, it's hard to do that because people want to tell a story and to just make it this like cohesive narrative. But I think there's a lot more going on. I have a lot of respect for you because I've, I've seen some of the maps of, of these sites and they're, they're crazy. I mean, you know, yeah. how, how do you, how do you parse out 10,000 years of 
humans hunting. So you, you think every time someone gets up there, they're like, oh, that, that blind's not good. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a new one over here, you know. Right. And then, oh, uh, I don't like that wall over there. Let's, let's create a new wall that goes over here. Oh, so it's like, I think they're called palimpsests. They're these just like the accumulation of human behavior over these these large periods of time. And a yes. lot of, I have a lot of respect for you for trying to parse that out because to me it looks it looks crazy. So like, what was the easiest way to figure out you know the relationship between blinds and and walls and and things like that? Yeah, the easiest way to do it because dating was not the way to do it. Right, the samples were too scarce and they didn't really speak to each other all that well. Um, so I had to look at space to try to answer that that problem. And it's kind of nice because, you you know, philosophers have been trying to do this forever. You can't separate time and space. So you can actually use space to talk about time, which is pretty cool. So what I did was I tried to look at how blinds were concentrated around these intercept areas at the site. And so what I did was I identified multiple uh, hotspots of, of, of clusters of hunting blinds. And I looked at how uh, walls were sort of intersecting those blinds those clusters of blinds. And I actually noticed that there was pretty periodic equal interval distances between them. So you could actually see that there's a directional trend of people abandoning parts of the site that didn't seem to work very well and building essentially the same thing, just a short distance away. They did it again. And then they did it again. Interesting enough at the high grade site, they were building towards the gathering basin, as it's called, where animals would congregate and it would get slowly get closer and closer and closer to that over time. And I don't have a whole lot to back that up, but I think the spatial story is pretty significant when you see it. Um, it's more in my thesis than anything else. But really just talking about time from a spatial perspective is kind of cool. And how ubiquitous are game drives on the North mm. American landscape, right? Like if we've talked about the diversity of hunting on this podcast a little bit, and you're the first one to come on to talk specifically about game drives. So is this a common occurrence in North America or even Colorado? In Colorado, yes, but really only in a specific portion of the state. So if you look at uh, the chain of Rocky Mountains here, they're really concentrated in the front range area. So you're talking about the Indian Peaks Wilderness, you're talking about Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, James Peak Wilderness. But then as soon as you get to the Raywa Wilderness or the Medicine Bow Mountains, there's a significant drop off. And in fact, when Mike Metcalf was an undergrad at CSU, that was his that was his honors thesis or his honors capstone project was to try to find game drives up there. They weren't there. And then you start to pick them up again a little bit into Wyoming. So like the Boulder Ridge Trap, for instance, a couple in there, but really not the same type of activity going on in Wyoming as it is in Colorado. This really looks like, you know, it could potentially be tied to folks that are, are regionally packed into this area and having to solve issues of subsistence um, uh, just to keep their populations healthy. But then it's cool because, you know, this, this technology crops up in the Colorado Rockies, but it's also like all throughout the world. I mean, you have it in, you have uh, Inuit and Nukshuk uh, up in Canada. You have desert kites in, in the Levant area. You have, you know, similar looking features that are used for exactly the same thing, essentially kind of in all these different places across the world. It's just nice to see that what you're talking about is, is replicated elsewhere. Um, and you have this, uh, this record to draw from, even though in North America here, you have, you have gaps, regional gaps, and where those those sites don't exist. Yeah. And could that be speaking to like different populations, like maybe what you're seeing in Wyoming is more 
ancestral Shoshone folks, whereas in Colorado, the Colorado Rockies are looking at like ancestrally Utes. So they're just have different hunting practices and cultural practices, which would speak to these, these gaps. That's mm-hmm. a loaded question. I apologize. Totally. No, that's interesting question though. I mean, and you know, speaking of like, uh, like numic expansion, for instance, like, uh, in the great basin, you have these, these sheep traps over there too, that look similar and that they're doing a, a very similar thing, but like the, nobody talks about those things being super related to what we have here in Colorado. And it's interesting because the high grade site that I worked on for my thesis, it has, it's the only site with this, but it has an example of a trade beat there. So it's being used late into time, uh, this particular site, uh, which is pretty cool. So. Yeah. Cause that date on, on that span of time where it was like mid 1800s definitely yeah. caught my eye. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Like, and as, as you mentioned earlier, just like the dates can be sporadic. So and sporadic. definitely, you know, the, yeah, the likelihood of all the every date that you sampled representing every event of that place being used is highly unlikely. Yeah, absolutely. And like and it's just it tying event in terms of hunting to feature construction is like nearly impossible, right? So these features can be built at a specific time. Maybe you can get at that with lichenometry, but like the odds that like the the bone dates and the charcoal dates are going to fall into those same ranges is very difficult. And there's no stratigraphic association between these features, right? So you really have to get creative about how you talk about these sites. Not too creative though, we hope. <laughs> no, <laughs> not too creative. <laughs> Still grounded in science. We are. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. It's rare that you find these, these hunting things that are one, one time only thing you know the the amount of investment you put into creating something like this doesn't really make sense to invest or doesn't make sense for, to invest and only do it once you know your calories that you lose from that it, it doesn't really the math doesn't work yeah so yeah so you're just seeing like it's it's really interesting especially in like uh, there's some stuff in wyoming where they're doing sheep trapping late on but you also see these these palum sets where there's multiple drive lines and it's kind of this this mess of stuff so it's 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 cool um, yeah. i'm excited that you got you got some good results out of it yeah thank you and you're exactly right about the palm test thing i mean like when we talk about sites like high grade the olsen site that uh, jason labelle and spencer pelton published on you know the one on flat top mountain is another good example trail ridge these are all really big sites with tons and tons of features and so you can imagine that a they're being used by loads of people that are coming back frequently to these these sites but they're also located on these major travel corridors that you know have been used by game and people for long periods of time the ones that are sort of distributed away from those corridors tend to be smaller and maybe like sort of like more like one offs or two offs or whatever, but they don't contain the the sheer breadth and diversity and quantity of all those features like you see at these other sites. Well, on that note, I don't think this is going to be a one off podcast. We might have to have him back to talk about <laughs> other things. Um, so we're going to end segment two here and uh, cool. we'll get you on, uh, on the other side after. Or, uh, these advertisements. Welcome back to segment three of episode 64 of a Life and Roots podcast. We are here with Kelton. And have you seen 10,000 BC? No, I have not. Okay, so this question is now irrelevant. So let me ask another question. <laughs> That's out. <laughs> like, if we were to picture, like, what a, like, you know, a game drive is, or, like, what a hunting blind is used for, like, these Arroyo-type things, like, can you like paint us like a little like, you know, picture of how that would work? Yes. 
So intercept hunting sites like game drives uh, tend to operate primarily off of the natural tendencies of animals. So the sites we're working in in, Col- in Colorado, we think we think they're mostly uh, sheep traps or bighorn sheep traps, mm-hmm. and so they nat- they naturally are gregarious and they congregate at like the tops of hills. And elk will do this too in big sort of migratory patterns. But what we think is happening is that they're migrating up hills, and then what happens is is they will naturally walk along these low lying walls. They won't really step over them. And we have game cameras of of deer, for instance, doing this um, at mm. these sites, and that they they sort of are naturally driven uh, just from the from the sheer obstruction of like a really lying low wall, and. What we find is is that these walls are sort of wing shaped, meaning that uh, they're very wide and broad at one end, and then they sort of uh, narrow and intersect at the other end, uh, sort of leading them to a pinch point. And so maybe there was a little incentive from like people behind them, sort of pushing them up uphill or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we think this is mostly passive that they're being led into these intercept areas. Okay. And at these intercept areas, the walls are typically built a little bit higher, maybe like you know fifty centimeters to a meter in height. And then surrounding that intercept area are clusters of hunting blind pits. And so as as animals approach this intercept area, hunters now have visual line of sight to shoot with a barrel, bow and arrow or an atlatl dart uh, mm. to capture these animals. And those those higher bits of walls at that intercept area uh, keep animals from escaping either down the cliff of their sheep. They're really good at running away down cliffs. Yeah. Or, or through the, or through all the features too. Um, so yeah, it's sort of a, a trap in that sense. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see that like animated or, you know, filmed in the yeah. movie. Yeah. A great agent based cool. model in the making. Yeah. yeah. So is this kind of like the stuff that's going on at Lindermeyer? I guess I'll, I'll transition into that. <laughs> yeah. Lindermeyer is such a mystery. Uh, that's a, I think that's a great place to start. It's the second <laughs> Folsom site ex- ever excavated. And of course they hunted bison there because uh, we have the evidence of within the bison pit and all throughout the site. Uh, but we really don't have a good sense of like how they were hunted in that particular area. And so that's part of what uh, this current investigation is looking at is how were the animals killed there? And really, we're looking at a specific portion of the site. It's the area of the initial discovery. So in 1924, the Coffin family found the Lindemeyer site. Uh, they found projectile points and scrapers on the surface. And they invited a bunch of people out. E.B. Renault was one of the first to visit Lindemeyer uh, in the early 1930s. And then eventually Frank Roberts was there. And he was interested in the stuff that was going on on the surface that they found, but they walked over to the Arroyo system on the far western side of the site, and they saw just just a massive exposure of uh, Pleistocene sediments that would eventually become just the the huge excavations that we all know about uh, from that site. But our work uh, with the Center for Mountain Plains Archaeology is really looking at the eastern side of the site and trying to test a hypothesis that we have about the contemporaneity between a possible kill area or um, maybe a, a primary set or a processing area for bison and then an associated camp that we think there was a lot of hide scraping working on. Perhaps hearth-centered use of space was happening there. Um, and so we're, we're looking to test that hypothesis uh, that these two clusters are related in time. Dang, dude. Benford would have loved you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I you, think you Jason would appreciate hearing that. Yeah, <laughs> you just have that. Like, I mean, yeah, like we kind of get that at Wyoming, but you get that. Like, you just have that analytical, like, scientific approach to thinking about stuff, and I respect the hell out of that. Thanks, man. This is a project that, like, right when I came into my master's, that Jason put me on uh, to help out with this, 
And, you know, it's worked out for me that now I'm the assistant director of the field school and like helping to build this research project up, you know, he, over the last 12 years and, and me later too, working with him, we surface mapped everything we could possibly find on this Eastern locality is what we call it. And we're seeing really, we saw really cool patterns in the distribution of artifacts there. So for instance, near the bison pit, which is the location of a 1935 excavation by Roberts, where you had articulated bison coming out of, of this hill slope, mm-hmm. we're finding big pieces of bone there. No surprise. We're finding really tiny resharpening debris, like you would expect from butchering tools. And you're finding no presence of burning or very little presence of burning on those artifacts. Then go about 90 meters to the east of there. And you're finding intensively burned materials, burned bone, burned lithics, hide scraping tools, evidence of gearing up or or uh, refitting projectile points, things you would expect in like a post-processing camp. And so it's a really kind of yeah. cool way of testing this this hypothesis. And so, yeah, we're, we dug uh, 30 square meters so far uh, between these areas, looking for datable materials, one, but then also just trying to tie up, you know, whether that surface record that we've been finding on the eastern locality really matches the subsurface, just in terms of quantity of things and, and the types of things that are there. And it's, it's pretty exciting. At the coffin uh, side where we think that the camp is located, um, this is the area that it was initially discovered. We do find more hide scrapers below surface, which is great. We find burned lithics there, which is great. And then towards the bison pit, we're also getting intact teeth as well as a first phalanx too. So there's some good potential to really date these items and, and actually try to, to assess that contemporaneity. Damn, dude. So volleyball question for you, and feel free to spike nice. this. What does the distribution of artifacts tell us about site usage? So why is it important that scrapers are found in one part of the site where bones are found another or where the campsite is. Yeah. So when thinking about site structure, you want to think about the articulation of all the different types of activities that would coincide with hunting as well as post-processing camps. And this is really the ABC model of, of Folsom um, residential mobility one, and then also subsistence. These things are sort of tied together in this way. Uh, but the idea is that, and this is sort of the, the caricature of Folsom mobility is that these folks are kind of, tethered nomads. They're really following bison across the landscape, following them to places that they aggregate, killing them and processing them and living right next to those kills or within a reasonable distance of them that you don't have all that labor of transporting meat around. So it's we have this expectation that near areas of primary kills, you should have associated camp activities. A really good analog for this is in the San Luis Valley at the Stewart's Cattle Guard site where you have this area that is pretty much bone and tips of projectile points surrounded by these household clusters, hide working areas, all these different things. And so in each one of these little clusters, you have expectations for the types of artifacts that you find within them. For instance, kill areas should be dominated by the tips of projectile points or ones that are lost within the kills and more articulated, bigger pieces of bone, or perhaps pieces of bone that wouldn't come back that aren't choice, uh, choice meats or choice cuts, essentially. And then surrounding those, you should have things like hide scrapers that are used for uh, preparing clothing, maybe gravers, maybe eyed bone needles that are used to make tight-fitting clothing during the younger dryas, uh, which is a, a much colder, a much colder time. Um, and also in those clusters around a kill, you maybe would expect to find places where people were refitting their their weapons right after they broke. And so you might expect to find like bases of projectile points in those spots uh, after they have broken, they've de-hafted them and they, they started making new points. And so, yeah, it's, it's really nice to kind of have that bigger scope of like what site structure should look like. 
And when you talk about choice cuts, these are the same cuts that like we think of today, right? Like they're yeah. the tenderloin, the rib meat, the stew. They're not, you know, with how many bison are being killed. You don't need to eat everything when you have 30 bison. You can absolutely be yeah. eating ribeyes for a long time. Oh, eating ribeyes, making jerky. Yeah. Just like stuff that's like super, super choice. And then also like, you know, that's another good expectation you could have for like the type of kill that you're looking at. Right. So like in Arroyos, there might be bison buried at the very bottom of that. You never get to. So like essentially they're completely full of every bone element that they have, but then in more open settings, there might be more intensive processing because they have access. Right. And of course that's all dictated by group size and needs and all that stuff. But again, that's another expectation for what you might want to see. Yeah. So does Lindemeyer fit in so far with what you've seen um, with this classic kind of fulsome behaviors? So you have these discrete areas or is, is it different in, in some areas? <laughs> yes, the class. this is the question for the site for sure. So the area that we're working in right now, which is only a sliver of the site in relative terms, uh, it seems to support this residential kill-to-kill model. And then you take 90% of the other site and it doesn't fit that pattern at all. Right. You have things like decorative bone uh, gaming pieces. You have hematite beads. You have bone needles. You have projectile point manufacture areas all intermixed. And there's nine to 12 clusters spread throughout 800 meters linearly across this ridgeline. So, yeah, there might be portions of the site that sort of fit this 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 normative view. But no matter how you look at it, it doesn't fit the overall narrative. Right. So it's either that. It was used once and it was people like aggregating and making this gigantic site or it was used many times, which also doesn't fit the, the pattern of, of small hunter gatherers just sort of chasing bison around. Right. Because why would they invest in the same place over time and time and time again if that is, in fact, uh, the Folsom, the Folsom pattern? And, and what's the time span for Folsom real quick for listeners? So this is coming right off of oh, yeah, Clovis. Yeah, yeah, right off of Clovis. Yeah. Yeah, so calibrated, you know, it's at the at the oldest end. It's like around twelve thousand eight hundred to you know twelve thousand three hundred or something like that, and then you know uncalibrated, you know eleven thousand to ten thousand. So you know it's a short span of time relatively in in terms of of Paleo Indian stuff. But yeah, yeah, that's kind of the general time span there. You're also so this this is going to be a part of this Lindenmeyer piece is part of a greater dissertation project and you had mentioned that you're also going to be studying stuff at the the Redham Folsom site in the yes. San Luis Valley do you mind explaining you know what you've found there so far yeah so the Lindenmeyer stuff that's definitely you know Jason LaBelle's project that I'm sort of helping out with I'm very fortunate and then my dissertation is revisiting another Smithsonian site from the San Luis Valley uh, called the Redham site it is as we talked about before, um, a palimpsest of many, many different occupations. So not only is it fulsome in age, it's also spans the Holocene through the middle, late archaic, as well as the late prehistoric period. And it is one of a handful of fulsome sites that really crests a certain size threshold in terms of space that is that is occupied, um, as well as artifact content. And so there's over 500 fulsome diagnostics from this site alone including projectile points, channel flakes, and preforms. And so uh, there's evidence that the Folsom hunter-gatherers were gearing up and making points at, at this site for sure, um, kind of like Lindemeyer, which is pretty cool. But mm-hmm. it is spread over 27 hectares. So it is this landscape-level 
complex of something. It could be a one-time aggregation. It could be multiple reoccupations or something in between those. And it's one of those sites that you just don't have a great vocabulary for because it's so it's so, so sort of rare. We're used to finding, you know, fulsome artifacts at either as isolates or small sites. You know, most of them fit within a half basketball court in size. And this is like, you know, a couple hundred basketball courts in size. <laughs> so, <laughs> do, you have a, yeah. do you have a thing for palm sets? I do. This is like... Um, <laughs> It is. It fascinates me to heck. Yeah, I. Uh, it is. It is like this, my sole purpose in archaeology is to work with palimpsests. <laughs> I like to look at them not as problems that they are. I like to look at them as answers to different kinds of questions. Like, why is it that folks from Folsom and later periods continually come back to use the same location time and time and time again? Uh, That's speaking to a different level of behavior that you don't really get just by observing like daily life, right? Like these, this site formation exists like sort of beyond uh, generation, generational type of behavior, uh, which is pretty cool. So there's a lot of environmental aspects to that, I think. Yeah, so uh, the Red End Project is starting up literally this next week with the field school. So you caught, caught, caught me right in my preparatory phase. So I'm like gathering cooking equipment and like all this stuff. I'm having a, fun, a ton of fun doing it. But yeah, we'll be going down there and systematically surveying the site in these 30 by 30 cells that are, there's about 475 of them. And it's going to take a long time (laughs) to do in full, but we're going to be little cellular automatons out there walking transects in these little squares and just systematically trying to to find more Folsom artifacts, one, uh, and two, to get a sense of like how... The surface assemblage has changed over time uh, from when the Smithsonian was there in 1979 and 1983 to now. And like, is it because of vegetation and dune and sand changes or is it is it something else? So that's that's part of the question that we're trying to find. Are you are you doing the the shoulder to shoulder Larry Todd model? Or are you doing larger spaced out transects? <laughs> no, three meter spacing. Here we go. Yeah. You're taking yeah. those kids down to Southern Colorado, and like <laughs> the heart of summer, dude. Are you a sadist as well? Like, good. Night. I have I have a sh- I have a shade tent, so you know, I'll bring a watermelon out. And uh, yeah, it's going to be hot. (laughs) (laughs) One, just one, no more. Yeah. So, well, it's going to be a lot of work. But the cool thing is, is that the site is totally flat. So like you can really knock out some coverage uh, with pretty minimal effort, which is good. You you might not be flat when the the wind blows, you know, because there's maybe some sand dunes on the other side of the. It could form some (laughs) sand dunes. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be new shade though. That'll be perfect. Oh, there you go. There you go. Hey, see, that's, that's, that's forward thinking that we really need. Yeah. That was one of, one of the things I missed so much about working in the Great Plains this summer was like, one, I wasn't in a JNP, I wasn't a JNP forest and like doing survey and running total station is much more difficult when you're not working in a flat open area. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The site is going to be a massive logistical challenge because any day that we're working, I have the site like broken up into different segments for each day. And at any given day, we're still shooting with the total station like 300 meters away at maximum. So it's like you need like the big prism that's like this big. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want any total station sharpshooters out there? Yeah. Oh, we, we got them. But man, it is. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> we'll you're going to need one of those robot ones that follows you around. 
Yeah, I'll take a robot. That'll be. Uh, <laughs> if you want to buy it for me? That'd be perfect. Yeah. I, I can operate it. Okay, I've used one before, but that that was yeah. I don't know, man. It seems like you could probably fund it yourself. You seem to be a, a fellowship and scholarship <laughs> god over here. <laughs> Thanks. You know, it's, it's the little ones that add up, to be honest. Like, if you just keep going for them, man. Yeah. That's your survey equipment right there. Yeah. yeah. I just got awarded the Ward Weekly. Nice. Yeah. I was pretty yeah. happy with that. Gotta love Mark yeah. Mitchell. Mark is great. He's a super good supporter of students. Yeah. He is. Well, yeah. Honor. Thanks for thanks thanks for coming on. Like, uh, yeah. Maybe we'll have to catch up with you. I think in, in the future to see how this uh, hell school that you're running works out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, as, no. Everybody be- says the same thing. This is so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> no, you're good, dude. And so, you know, before we end the show, Kelton, what are a couple sources that you'd recommend for anyone interested in game drives, Lindenmeyer site, or even just Folsom archaeology? Sure. Well, if you're just interested in Folsom archaeology, I'll start there. Definitely go for Melter's classic reinvestigation of the type site for sure. But then there's also a new Mountaineer book that just came out, which is really cool. Brian Andrews, Meltzer, and and Steiger just put that out. But then more specifically to Lindemeyer, there's nothing more classic than the Wilson and Roberts 1978 report. It's a Smithsonian classic, uh, which is really great. That site, though, has not had too much written on it. And so I am definitely keep up with the publications that Jason and I are putting out, um, sort of testing these hypotheses that have been longstanding uh, for a really long time. And then looking at Frederick Soleil's work out of Kansas, he's done a lot on on, um, gearing up and projectile point manufacture from the site. And then, of course, there's always going to be chronological papers that Holiday and others have done, uh, which is really cool. In terms of game drives, again, there's not too much like book literature on this stuff, but you can always look at Jim Benedict's classic Center for Mountain Archaeology reports. There's a there's several of them. The Rock Game Drives of Rocky Mountain National Park is one. There is the Arapahoe Pass book. There's also Steve Castle's In This Land of Shining Mountains, which is a really great uh, sort of synthesis of many different game drives in the Indian Peaks region. Very great books. And then, of course, the articles that the Center for Mountain and Plains Archaeology is putting out. Always got to plug those when I can because uh, I'm really proud of the work that we do there. Excellent. You'll be able to find mm-hmm. all those in the episode description down below. Yeah. Well, guys, please be sure to rate and review the podcast, either on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, wherever you're finding it. I just realized I skipped the first question I'm supposed to ask. Where can our <laughs> listeners find you on social media? Sure. So I got Facebook, obviously, but then Meanderthal13 is my Instagram. And then today I just started the Red End, Red End Folsom Project page. Uh, so you can find that on Instagram at Red End underscore Folsom and then uh, on Facebook at the Red End Project. I'm going to that right now. Sweet. Awesome. So because you're an archaeologist and because we chose a show that has a specific question associated with it. So ultimately, if you had another opportunity in life, would you choose, again, to study palimpsests of human behavior? Absolutely. Keep me in there. <laughs> Bear me with them. This will be this will be what I do forever. So, yep. Awesome. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Kelton Meyer. You can find Kelton on Instagram at Neanderthal13. Is that like Neanderthal or Neanderthal13? Meander. Oh, it's it's like a play on words. It's meander, like with an oh, M. Oh, I, I was wondering why. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was like, I'm sitting here on Instagram now, like, where are we? <laughs> oh, there you are. And, the, and, and, right his, and his new Red and Folsom project stuff that we will we will release as well. And as David said, rate and review the podcast. 
and provide us any feedback on how we're doing. Yeah, and if you're Colorado this November, come check out me and Kelton at Plains Conference. It'll be a blast. Later. And come to RMAC too. Woo! Oh, RMAC. Yay. Every two years. So catch it. <laughs> Popping time in Colorado. All right, we're out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Want to hear a joke about paper? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Never mind. It's terrible. (laughs) Oh, no. no. (laughs) That one was good. I like that one. No. (laughs) Excellent. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.